Today is April 4th, 2013. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Gordon Shepard. He is Professor of Neurobiology at Yale University. His work includes fundamental studies of the integrative properties of dendrites, dendritic spines, and synaptic microcircuits using the olfactory bulb as a model system. He's credited with the first physiologically-based circuit diagram of a brain region, his pioneering work in dendrodendritic synaptic interactions via physiology and computational prediction with Will Rawl prompted a rethink about the input-output operations of neurons. I could go on and on and on here, but this is just a little laundry list. Um, his lab first mapped odor representation in the olfactory system. He's also a key player in the movement to adapt computational platforms to building neuroinformatics databases and his tools for modeling neurons and brain microcircuits. Uh, many of you may also know him him, uh, especially all you grad students, as the author of important texts, including The Synaptic Organization of the Brain, which is now in its fifth edition, I guess, maybe fifth, Neurobiology, which has uh, also had a few editions, Foundations of the Neuron Doctrine, Creating Modern Neuroscience, The Handbook of Brain Microcircuits, and now a new book. Is, this, is it new? Neurogastronomy? Sorry, I don't remember the after the colon. I didn't actually write down the full title. How the brain creates flavor. And does it matter? Why it matters. Why it matters. Okay, thank you. Hello, Gordon. Hello. Pleasure to have you here. Around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Jim Bauer. Hello. We've got Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And we've got a grad student here, Suman Song. Hi. Hi. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So we could spend today talking about so many things. Uh, Conveniently, you've written a powerful personal account of your scientific career elsewhere. So rather than take this into the realm of oral history, which is my usual temptation, um, let's talk some shop. Good. Great. Uh, So in some of your recent work, you and others are are constructing, I I guess, what could be seen as a a taxonomy of cortical evolution that has at its core a canonical microcircuit. as a basic organizational motif uh, that has been elaborated upon and specialized across vertebrate evolution um, and according to the computational needs of the cortical region as Mm -hmm. it develops. Um, I was hoping you could first introduce the idea better than I just did and um, then maybe discuss with the group what it would mean for there to be a basic circuit mechanism common to all types of cortex. Yeah, so working uh, as I did to begin with on the olfactory system, I got interested in um, the uh, basic way that it's organized, and that uh, takes you back to uh, the simplest uh, vertebrates, the fish and the amphibians and the reptiles. And the classical anatomists characterized the forebrains of those animals in terms of a simple three-layer cortex that was divided into olfactory part, a hippocampal part, and in between a part they simply called the dorsal cortex. And that's continued pretty much to be true uh, with uh, all the subsequent work that's taken place uh, in trying to understand the evolution of the neocortex. And so some people uh, have said that uh, the Dorsal cortex is the forerunner of neocortex because in the mammals we have an olfactory cortex, we have a hippocampus which is much elaborated, and then what's left 
is what we call neocortex, and that might therefore have uh, had as its antecedent the, uh, the dorsal cortex seen in the submammalian uh, species. And so uh, we got interested in olfactory cortex because we were interested in what the olfactory bulb projected to, which was olfactory cortex, and characterized the organization of that in terms of the synaptic organization and the microcircuits in terms of two main circuits. Uh, the input came in at the most distal parts of the dendrites, and my, uh, the student working with me then, Lou Haberly, was a wonderful uh, electrophysiologist and anatomist, and he was able to identify not only a recurrent inhibitory pathway, but also a recurrent excitatory one. And that was the first time this had been seen uh, in that simple cortex. And so we suggested that that might have been a pattern uh, that would have been e repeated and elaborated in the evolution of the later uh, uh, evolution of the, of the neocortex in the, in the mammals. And in fact, uh, a, uh, uh, a study was carried out by, first it was by Ford Ebner and his colleagues on, the, on uh, working out the connectivity in the dorsal cortex. And then uh, by Connors and, and Kriegstein in dorsal cortex, uh, an electrophysiological study in dorsal cortex. And they came out with the same basic circuit that we had seen in olfactory cortex. And they stated it very clearly in the, in the, uh, in, in the, the summary of their paper. And so uh, the hypothesis is that in the elaboration of neocortex to six layers that you have embedded in uh, both the dorsal, the superficial part of that neocortex and the deep part of the neocortex, circuits for recurrent excitation and recurrent inhibition that in some ways express this basic principle that's seen in these simpler cortexes. Now, the question is how you actually get from the simpler uh, uh, patterns in the, in the uh, reptiles to the more elaborated patterns in the neocortex of the, of the mammals. And that's open to debate, but the principles are there to be uh, analyzed. So if, it, it, if it's at that basic level, is it, is it possible? So if you have these just groups of recurrent circuitry, is it possible that you would just double that and you get the superficial layers and the uh, in the infragranular layers as a doubling of that basic circuit? Is that reasonable at all to think to think that? And then there's connections between them. Well, one of the first people to carry out a modeling study of the olfactory cortex to incorporate these uh, principles is sitting to my right. And maybe Jim could comment on exactly what you've uh, you've uh, suggested. Well, sure. In in full disclosure, uh, Gordon is my grandfather. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> 
meaning that Lou Haverly already mentioned was my thesis advisor as a graduate student, and he was, and Gordon was his uh, advisor as well. So I accept all members of my family. Some are harder to accept than others. I believe that. Anyway, so so my you know sort of view of this is very much a Shepherdian view. I don't even know if that's a word. Probably should be. Um, so there are some interesting. I mean, there are some core differences between neocortex certainly primary neocortex and the olfactory cortex, assuming that that is homologously primary olfactory cortex. One of the big and interesting ones, as uh, Gordon already mentioned, <clears throat> the input that comes from the olfactory bulb to the olfactory cortex comes in, a, in layer one, whereas in neocortex, the primary input comes in at layer four. Okay. Another big difference between these two structures, neocortex and olfactory cortex, or three-layer cortex and six-layer cortex, is that the afferent information in olfactory cortex actually grows across the top of the surface, whereas the afferent information in neocortex primary sensory structures comes in from underneath. Okay, So one possibility that we've thought about, and Lou and I actually talked about this many years ago in the context of the conversations he himself had had with Gordon, was the possibility that what you saw going from three-layered cortex to six-layered cortex was basically a kind of uh, a duplication so that if you just duplicate the cortex, you would have two afferent projection zones, one layer four, and then layer one. Of course, in layer, layer one, the inputs for which have been mostly ignored for the vast majority of the time that people have been studying their favorite cortex, which turns out to be visual cortex, I can say in this room, unfortunately, <coughs> the layer one inputs have largely been ignored for years in visual cortex. However, one of the big changes that's happened over the last 10 years, especially as people have worked increasingly in animals that are not anesthetized, is that they find out that that layer one input has a substantial effect on the response properties of the neurons to the afferent input coming into layer four. So one thought, and, and obviously this goes on and on, and it's Gordon's show, so I don't want to do that, but one thought about this is that in some sense layer one continues the projection from the olfactory bulb to the olfactory cortex to entorhinal cortex to the dorsal part of the cortex to neocortex. So that's a an input stream starting with the olfactory system that goes all the way through to visual cortex. And with neocortex you now have another stream of afferents that's starting in layer four and mapped that's sort of going the other way. So that in some deep sense, neocortex and the way it's evolved still includes the associative feed-forward and inhibitory and excitatory networks that, that uh, Gordon was talking about, especially in layer one. But you've imposed on that 
this other set of inputs in layer four. And what all that all comes down to is the thing again. I first heard mentioned first was mentioned to me in the context of Lou talking about his work with Gordon was the idea that the olfactory system played a very important role, probably in the development of frontal cortex. <coughs> I mean, the frontal part of the cortex. It is called the rhinencephalon for a reason, probably mostly because it's close to the nose. But it, actually, in terms of the evolution of the structure, the olfactory system may have played a really strong role. Well, it's likely that the olfactory system played a strong role um, in all animals because all animals are, are, virtually all animals are dependent on the olfaction for uh, organizing most of their behavior. Uh, certainly feeding, certainly mating, certainly um, uh, reproductive uh, and uh, care of the, uh, of the young. Um, and for marking out territory, and so forth. So it's, it's not unreasonable that the brain would reflect that uh, importance of the olfactory input. I think, just to mention one other thing, which it would be nice to have Gordon comment on, because you know, he's one of the reigning experts in the field, is the nature of computation in the olfactory system the nature of the computational problem is quite a bit different than the nature of, say, visual computation. So to first order in frogs, the visual system is looking for objects that are brown, that are moving at a particular velocity, that you stick your tongue out and eat. By its nature, and this is part of what, what Gordon was talking about today in his talk, the olfactory system has a much more complex task to solve. It's a highly dimensional task. When you smell something, you're smelling, you're making a recognition based on potentially thousands of complicated molecules. So the olfactory system has to work in a much more complex uh, analysis space to do its core computational task. Well, I propose that to uh, a visual physiologist colleague of mine. And um, so he responded that uh, the visual system, in fact, is involved in multidimensional analysis, too. Um, because, after all, the visual input, in fact, is not one input, but is multiple submodalities, color, shape, motion, so forth. That all has to get... so that. Can't you call all of those dimensions? Sure, but the, the argument, the evolutionary argument is this. The question is, so what I would say, and we've talked about this before, what I would say is that the only reason the visual system can do that is because it parasitized an olfactory computation. And that the olfactory, the visual system by itself would not necessarily have evolved in that way had it not had this algorithm basically invented in the context of the olfactory system, which it could parasitize. So in that case, I mean, in that argument, you could say, anytime you see anything interesting happening anywhere in the brain, it's just like, uh, 
It's a cool idea that was stolen from the old. <laughs> no, no, only it's like what we say about only Apple. In, I, I detect a little pushback here. <laughs> <laughs> only in neocortex, the cerebellum has nothing with it. Cerebellum is evolved on its own much earlier than all of this. Actually, yeah. at the very beginning of it. So no, only in neocortex. Um, so that's the. If you look, it turns out in birds, the volst which is the advanced processing space of birds, actually probably evolved out of the geniculate instead of all the factory system. So I actually suspected for a long time, and actually Gordon might know about this too, given how widely read I doubt it. I doubt it. It sounds <coughs> shaky ground here for me. When birds land on a tree, do they think it's a tree? In other words, do birds generalize over objects? Because I think one of the core characteristics of computation in the olfactory system is that you need to generalize or generate a gestalt in response to a complex stimulus. And therefore, you can generalize and say, this is apple pie, and that's apple pie, and that's apple pie, even though one is made by Stouffer's, and therefore probably shouldn't be considered real apple pie, <coughs> related to your talk earlier today. But birds, my suspicion is, and I don't know if anyone... Well, some have looked at this indirectly, actually, but birds, my suspicion is when you land on a tree, doesn't recognize it as a tree, per se, as an object, but instead as that thing that you've landed on. There's this famous uh, parrot at Arizona that they spent years and years training to generalize, to recognize a truck, a, cor a toy truck as a truck, and a toy truck that's blue as different from a toy truck that's red. And it took out, it took 25 or 30 years to teach the bird to do that. That's something that mammals do just like that. And I think it's because of the, they're using a computational structure that was built by a system that has to do that every minute, every day. So anyway. This is too deep a question for me. I, I, I defer <laughs> to Charles Wilson on this. <laughs> Who's... I, I'm sure I thought about that. I guess the real question is whether birds know about platonic ideas. Right? <laughs> Which I suspect. Since platonic they ideas come first, even before birds. Oh, so, that works. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you think? Anyway. I'd like to get back to this idea of the canonical microcircuit. Um, as, as a, so when Ford Fischel was here, we had this. Do you remember this? We had this kind of spirited discussion about um, lumpers and splitters yeah. in the context of um, cortical interneuron diversity. And um, Gord concluded that physiologists are natural splitters just because they like diversity. And they, remember, do you remember this? Yes, I do. And, um, and so, but, but here, you know, you're taking this extreme position of being a lumper, right? But it, even within this idea of... I didn't say right. Well, okay, why don't you accept, so there is a, there is a parallel argument, right, uh, in, in terms of, of microcircuits. Is there one canonical microcircuit, or is, are there many in terms of the diversity that we see? So, and, so um, the idea of a basic circuit um, came, came first, um, and it was simply a way of identifying the minimum connectivity that would provide uh, some overview of the main input-output operations of a, of a particular region. And so if it gave you, for example, the straight-through pathway, and if it enabled you to identify the lateral pathways where processing would take place, that was a good starting point. 
at which to then ask further questions about the specific operations that take place within that region. And the retina was a perfect example of that. Um, and you could base it on the first representations of the simple uh, organization uh, arising out of uh, Dowling and Werblin uh, and Boycott and, and the others who established the, uh, those, those uh, 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 early recordings. And in our case, the olfactory bulb had the same straight-through pathways and the two lateral levels of lateral pathways. So it seemed a useful way to help people get oriented. Then along came the molecular biologists. And so the same questions came up. Well, aren't the, the circuits much more complicated, particularly in the retina and so forth? But then the molecular biologists came along. And in order to organize all of the ways that proteins, uh, all the conformations that they have, they thought in terms of families. And so the GPCRs are a perfect example. G-protein-coupled receptors all have seven transmembrane domains. Um, and they're organized in a kind of a, a, a barrel organization. And most of them have then an opening within which there's a, some kind of a binding pocket. So for me, that's the canonical circuit. That's the basic circuit of that particular type of molecule. Um, and But uh, there are... Uh, many different ways that those are used that are quite distinct. So you can, you, uh, you can have binding pockets that bind dopamine, you can have binding pockets that bind acetylcholine, that bind um, a, a whole range of different kinds of transmitters, and you have a whole range uh, on the other side uh, of uh, output uh, in terms of second messengers and what their actions may be, excitatory inhibitory. So you, from that simple, what, what we can call basic confirmation or canonical confirmation, you then uh, elaborate, the, the nervous system, the, the body, elaborates a whole range of properties. So how do we define that conceptual framework within the, which to classify? Molecular biologists are, uh, don't need any further definition they have GPCRs, they have uh, different kinds of channels, they have, um, and they, there are different kinds of, of uh, uh, tweaking of the, the kinds of connectivity and charges and so forth. So, 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 ask a question. so why, does, why is it such a difficult problem to conceive of the same kind of categorization of basic skeletons, so to speak, of the organization of the connectivity, the, 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 we could call it the canonical connectome, uh, upon which different uh, parts of the cortex elaborate quite distinct kinds of, of uh, input-output operations, and yet it's all elaborated from this same. So, so if you is ask... That, is that unreasonable? Sure. If, if, you, um, if you ask Rodney Douglas or Henry Markham, what is the canonical microcircuit for cortex? They will tell you it's a cortical column. No, 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 no. Kevin, Kevin, and Rodney have their own basic, their own canonical circuit. You know that. Yeah, yeah. The origin. That's what we're talking okay. about. Okay, but when Mount Castle first introduced the cortical column, one of the things, if you look at the literature subsequently, that people were really interested was the idea that this was a column like this that you replicate it to do yeah. different things. 
So a lot of people think of the canonical microcircuit of neocortex as being a column of some sort. Yeah, no, but we're not talking about that, actually. I mean, that's a separate question that we can get to. But right now, I'm talking about what is equivalent for uh, Martin and Douglas to what they call a canonical circuit, which is essentially the, exactly the same idea as a basic circuit. Um, they did it in terms of, of boxes with different connectivity. But at one point, I think it was in the first chapter in Synaptic Organization, I showed that it, uh, if you redraw it in uh, a more realistic frame, it looks exactly like the basic circuit I was talking about. It could be, but one of, the, one of the things about cortical columns that has always been emphasized by people who talk about that as a canonical microcircuit is they emphasize the local connectivity. Um, your notion of canonical circuit for cortex, intrinsically because it comes out of your study of the olfactory system, where there is no evidence for anything that looks like a column, where there's, where the... No, we're not. Yeah, we're we're just not talking about column at this at this level, at, at the level that's equivalent so, to the GPCRs. So the distinction so is, is closure. It has to do with the boundaries, right? Well, the or the scale. The, the thing that Jim or, is. Oh yeah. Or the, or the scale. I mean, um, a, a number of these little basic circuits make a column. Uh, if if you want to look at it. That oh, way. I see. So, but I mean, take, take the uh, basal ganglia. I mean, your, your diagram for the organization of the basal ganglia is what I would call a basic circuit. But I mean, do you, yeah. what do you call it? Same thing. I, right. I followed your All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure. If you had a better idea. I, I didn't for, have a better idea. I mean, is but that of course, in that case, we didn't have to worry about, about these boundary issues. So basically, the, I mean, the, I guess the strongest position about a column is that it corresponds to something like a barrel in the barrel cortex, and it's kind of a self-contained, informationally self-contained object, that everything in there is carrying this, this basically mm -hmm. processing a single signal, and the next one over is processing right, a different signal. Yeah. But we don't, of course, the basal ganglia doesn't have anything really that could possibly be compared to that. So the, everything is overlapping with yeah, everything the else. Yeah, those are on a. Well, there it becomes a, a question of scale, I guess. But nobody thinks that everything inside is. In fact, there's really just one striosome that's like a worm. Oh, oh really? That's been plugged oh. through that out. Oh, so, I see. Uh, and everything in there isn't one thing, that's for sure. And so <laughs> there isn't really a notion that things become discrete like that in the. Is that right? If you do a 3D reconstruction? It's, it's like an endoplasmic... Yeah, isn't it cool? It's like, maybe there's two. Yeah. Uh, because you'd have to do a complete enough reconstruction to be sure that it was just one or oh, two that's or three. Really but it's not, yeah. you know, 50. Yeah, I see. For sure. Okay. But I think, just to go back to this, because I think it is an, an important question. It's clear, and, and I've done a lot of reading on core problems to figure out why they are still being talked about. Um, but it's clear that one of the uh, what one of the things that people saw as an advantage in thinking about cortical columns was this idea that there's a fundamental computational unit, and that what you do in cortex is you simply replicate that unit to do that computation. If, if you look at visual cortex, for example, in which it's been claimed forever that there are columns, 
and where that idea has been applied, both by neurobiologists and also theorists, to think about how it works. Okay. The ocular dominance column does this and the, the rest. Okay. One of the things that is pretty clear, I think, from your work and that you've talked about is that in, in olfactory cortex, and our models were, were part of this, in olfactory cortex, it's pretty clear that the whole cortex works together. That the computation depends, it hasn't been broken up into little pieces and parts. I mean, the, the mitral cell projections you showed today show that a single mitral cell actually projects throughout the cortex in a very different pattern than a single, you know, sort of part of the retina. So it does seem to me to be that there's sort of a difference in how you think about computation if you're thinking about columns and this repeated unit of computation. Well, as you know, Luke uh, compared it to the face area in the visual cortex with long association fibers that made it into this content addressable memory for recognizing uh, complex right. patterns. I, I sort of like that idea. Yeah, so one of the things that that people say, and Lou said this too, is, and I think it's another, there's another evolutionary argument in here, Does you go from visual cortex to eventually IT and then in the raw cortex, you're sort of going from a kind of mapping that is more retina-like to a kind of mapping that's more olfactory-like. Mm -hmm. So the deeper you get into face recognition areas, you know, IT, whatever, the more the topography looks like the olfactory system, which is a Another argument I use for suggesting that vision parasitize the olfactory <coughs> computation. But it does seem to me that there is a distinct, either there's a common sort of computational basis, canonical circuit for computation that runs across the whole cortex, or visual cortex does things distinctly differently than the the olfactory system does in terms of canonical circuitry. Well, There's a difference between saying something has got columns and saying something has a columnar organization, right? Because anything that has this sort of vertical organization, you could say had a columnar organization. It doesn't really imply that there are boundaries, uh, boundaries and modules and well, so Well, it's on. very clear that a lot of the theorists that have worked in this area, and even a lot of the neurobiologists for a long time, including Mountcastle himself, did think, in fact, published papers to demonstrate that there were distinct boundaries. Yeah, anyway, but, but still, I mean, you were just saying before that there are some cortical areas where the afferents go uh, tangentially along the cortex and ones where they go uh, vertically. But this is a relatively surface. new way of thinking about neocortex, um, that, the, that the horizontal connections actually matter. Um, and therefore, I think it... it heads more in the direction of what Gordon has been saying for many years is the actual canonical structure of cortex. Which is so one of the interesting things that Jim and I have mentioned uh, uh, in the past about two is that uh, a review of the column idea by Jonathan Horton and, and Adams, I forget his first name, um, in 2005, do you read that? Um, which reviewed all of the literature on columns and concluded that there was no evidence that it was a, a fundamental part of processing visual or any other sensory information except for oral action. 
um, because there were species that had columns in a given system, and there were species that didn't have columns. And even in the species that did have columns, individuals might not have columns. And so that raises the question of the anatomically identified and functionally identified column. To what extent is that a, a necessary and sufficient uh, entity for uh, carrying out sensory processing at the cortical level? And they concluded that it wasn't, and that it was instead a spandrel. And a spandrel, they uh, uh, said, was the little place at the top of a Gothic arch that was left over when you'd made the arch and made the, uh, the uh, uh, rest of the church, and you just had to fill it in with something. <laughs> and so that's what, that's what the column was. Well, um, that may or may, or may or not be, but it does raise the interesting issue of whether uh, uh, the extent to which the nervous system has to actually construct a, an anatomical and physiological identifiable structure of a column in order to carry out the processing, or whether there's something more fundamental that uh, is taking place that may give you an identifiable column, and, or it may not. And the operations still take place. In turtle visual cortex, the visual information goes across the top. Yes. And so uh, you don't have to have the... Uh, the so maybe uh, that's the visual cortex that... that maybe that's the cortex that the visual system parasitizes. Yes. But that was no factor. Uh, well, we, we, we probably don't want to. <laughs> Can I ask a question about that? About the actual components of the, of the basic circuit in the cortex? Yeah. Because it seems to me that the feed-forward inhibition ought to be part of that. But it always gets, everything gets spoken about in this sort of recurrent No, no, no. In feed-forward inhibition is present in all of these circuits. So that, uh, that axon that, that, that uh, inner neuron that is part of the feedback is also part of the feed-forward as well. So isn't that strange? No, it seems no. to me that the same inner neuron serves both functions. So no, no, no. Yeah, and this is also true in dorsal cortex of Connors and Krigstein. There, there, there's one type of inner neuron that they identified, and it has a massive convergence of not only the, the feedback, but also the feed-forward uh, uh, connections. There are layer 1A neurons, inhibitory neurons in piriform cortex yeah. that are purely feed-forward, though they get most, almost all their input, I think, from, in fact, given where their dendrites are, all the input from the uh, yeah. microsulfur. And I'm sure this is true in hippocampus. There are so many different interneurons there, it's hard to keep track, but uh, <laughs> what about in, in, uh, in basal ganglion? All the interneurons in the striatum are in the feed-forward position. So even neurons like uh, the parvalbumin containing fast spiking cells that are often in both feed forward and feedback configuration in the cerebral cortex are only in really in the feed forward configuration in the striatum. Well, that's but just because they kicked, they kicked all the pyramidal cells out, right? No, isn't this because the feedback <laughs> inhibitory interneuron is the spiny cell? That's a uh, not an evolutionary argument. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so, but I mean, uh, yes, I mean, basically, you could argue that that the inner neurons that you don't need feedback are, inner neurons because the projection neurons are yeah uh, are inhibitory. Yeah. But if the fast spiking cells' particular firing patterns and intrinsic properties and connectivity is important yeah. in the feedback uh, configuration, okay. then the spiny cell doesn't reproduce any of that stuff. I see. But we, historically, engineers have loved and understood feedback circuits, and they don't understand as well feed-forward circuits. Well, so. feed-forward inhibition is kind of spooky and mysterious. I mean, well, in the cerebellum, I mean, something excites something, and, and then I, I it immediately it, inhibits the same well, no, thing. I thought the it, same it was differentiating. Mm -hmm. So in the... <laughs> Sorry, this is really important, and I agree with Charlie, it's been sort of an anachronism. People haven't understood really why there's so much feed inhibit for inhibition. If you think about it in a different way, however, and this came out of the cerebellar modeling we've done for years now, what is, what is an excitatory synapse really doing? Historically, people have thought of excitatory synapses as sort of driving activity, right? Sort of like... You call so-and-so on the phone, and they call you on the phone, they call you on the phone, and eventually the person calls you back. Okay? So that's how we thought about how the brain works. But really, probably, the majority of excitatory neurons in the brain are really about regulating the active properties of the dendrites. They're really about setting the computational state of the dendrite, which goes all the way back, actually, to very early work that that, that uh, Gordon did with Will Rawl. If, in fact, excitation is involved in modulating the computational state, the dynamic state of the dendrite, then inhibition at the same time is the other leg, the other side of that regulation. Yeah. And in the, in the cerebellum, you can see this very distinctly because the parallel fibers that excite the Purkinje cells also excite inhibitory neurons. And one of the things that's come out of the modeling we've done in the last 25 years is to show that what those two inputs are really doing is modulating the postsynaptic voltage-dependent conductances in the, in the dendrite. They're not actually involved in driving the output of the cell. So if excitation and inhibition are supposed to work together to modulate the dynamic state of dendrites, and again, the, the first person on the planet to explore active dendrites. And the idea that a dendrite is an active device was Gordon working well, with Will Rawl. Well, there, no, well, oh, there were a couple. There was, but anyway, the, yeah. well, the first one's to model it, for sure. You've got to give me that. <laughs> the first one's to understand it. How about that? Um, if that's what's going on, then feed-forward excitation and feed-forward inhibition make all kinds of sense. It's in a system where that you assume is like a telegraph system where so-and-so pushes, so-and-so pushes, so-and-so pushes, so-and-so pushes, so-and-so. You're saying modulating the computational state makes all kind of sense? I mean, that doesn't make all kind of sense to me. I don't even know what that means. Well, to understand what that means, you have to look at it either in mitral cells or in the, the Purkinje cells specifically. Or read the chapter I just finished. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that was sorted out. So, so what about... What about the evolution of the basal ganglia in relation to the cortex. How did, how did they did they did they get dragged along or did they drive the whole process? Have they evolved? <laughs> With, we talked about so this is you know there's this old notion that the, the basal ganglia was there before the cortex mm -hmm. and that somehow did something 
without the cortex in the, during and back in those days. The, right? the, the, the avian uh, analogies. Yeah, I, actually, people. I mean, maybe amphibians would be better uh, argument, but as far as I'm, I'm no expert on the evolution of the basal ganglia, actually. But the way I understand it is that every example of, of an animal that had a basal ganglia without a cortex turns out actually does have a cortex equivalent structure that provides the same function to the basal ganglia. Oh. So, for example. Uh, I want to ask you about this before the, our time is up anyway today, uh -oh. Uh -oh. the olfactory tubercle. Uh -oh. The olfactory tubercle kind of gets left out of everything. The olfactory tubercle is a basal ganglia-like structure that gets... I thought it was the part of the ventral striatum. Yeah, is that so true? That's, yeah, that's true, which is, is basal... Ventral striatum is, frankly, basal ganglia, and the olfactory tubercle is sometimes considered a part of the ventral striatum because of yeah. its basal ganglia-like yeah. organization. Yeah. So just, uh, and so there would be an example of a basal ganglia that goes with the, doesn't go with any cortex at all, but goes directly with olfactory pulp. Would that be a right way of saying it? Well, I don't know. Um, the olfactory tubule is, is an extremely intriguing area in its own right because it has the eyelets of Calleja. Yes. Um, and they're, I think, loaded with dopamine. Uh -huh. um, and, but uh, there aren't many studies of that. Dan Wesson has done a study, of both, I think, of old factory tubercle. Um, and we did a little bit of work on it, but um, uh, I, don't, I don't think we have a clear idea, other than because it has dopamine, it must be possibly related well, it has a bunch more. I mean, the, the, the cells that receive the dopamine look like striatal spiny cells. There's cells that look like globus pallidus cells I, nearby, and they receive connections from those. I can't tell you. So, yeah, I can't. It really looks like a little so, basal, like a little, uh, like in the bird uh, area X, where the whole basal ganglia yeah, kind of so gets get contained into one thing. So the basal ganglia parasitize the olfactory system, too. Oh, no. <laughs> I suppose so. The olfactory tubercle was the original basal ganglia, I guess, which then managed to segregate out and become the basal ganglia, basal ganglia. The, the basal, basal ganglia would be happy to parasitize <laughs> the, the olfactory system. If, if right. that's what the visual cortex did too, then it puts the basal ganglia in big company. <laughs> All right. Oh, the company you keep? <laughs> Don't push basal ganglia people around. I work in the cerebellum as well, and they basically stole all of our function, which I'm very happy about, actually. <laughs> so, uh, but the basal ganglia have these such tight relations with cortical layer 5B. No. Upper the upper half five of, a, of, that right? of layer five. Yeah, yeah that's right. 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 But they're really a couple of different. Con actually, also with deep layer five because oh, makes sense. Uh, all the there there are two major classes of cortical inputs to the basal ganglia. One is collateral pyramidal cells. So even the pyramidal corticospinal cells give off collaterals. And, oh, yeah. and the second is collaterals of corticocortical cells. So all the long-distance corticocortical pathways have a branch that go into basal ganglia. So yeah. basal ganglia is listening to that intrinsic discussion going on in the cortex, and it's also listening to the output of the cortex at the yeah. same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get the feeling this could go on for days, yeah. <laughs> but I have to cut you short. Thank you for being with us, Gordon Shepard.
This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you. Good. Yeah.